Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. We respond when people are having, in many instances, the worst day of their lives, and we try and make it better. I've always admired entrepreneurs. My wife's father started a refrigeration distribution business for restaurants. He opened one of the first, if not the first, high-end food court and always had a new business idea he was dreaming up. It was almost in his DNA. Some people are just like that, and maybe you know some of them. And it turns out that on the Sidcast, I've had a chance to talk to a bunch of entrepreneurs. Some, like Howard Anderson, built a technology business by the seat of his pants. And then one day, wow, it starts to generate and be worth uh, more than $100 million. Others, like Deb Schinglinger, created restaurants, including the best coffee shop in New Hampshire, Lucky's. Michelle Ollie started the cartoon school. In truth, almost all of us have a bit of the entrepreneur in us, as long as we're open to ideas, to change, and getting better. Some of you may have heard of Carol Dweck. She's the psychology professor at Stanford, has written uh, extensively about the growth mindset, really great stuff, which in my experience is central to just about everything we do. And not just at work, our lives are so much more interesting when we're willing to try new stuff, no matter what it is. Lately, I've been doing New York Times crossword puzzles online, something I never thought I would do or could do, but it turns out that it's fun and challenging. And even if I don't get them all, it doesn't really matter. It's the process of figuring it out that's energizing. It's just doing something new. That sounds kind of trivial, But trivial is not necessarily a bad thing as long as we're trying something new. I bet each of you listening right now could think about, well, what have I tried that's different, that's new just in the last week or last month? And if you've got to think about the last year, then you're really in trouble. Why not try something new? That's what entrepreneurs do. That's what a growth mindset is. That's actually, you know, that's what makes life fun to just keep growing and trying and experimenting. Many new businesses are created when there's a problem we can't solve and we get really upset and we start trying to figure it out. For some people, that figuring out process can become obsessive and we can't, we won't let go of that bone. Our guest today on the Sidcast is Dan Richards and he's the guy who didn't let go of that bone. Here's the problem he was grappling with. What happens if you're on a vacation or a business trip and something goes wrong? I'm not talking about lost luggage wrong but you get really sick or you find yourself in the middle of a civil disturbance or you need help, you need help right away. If you think that the travel insurance and your credit card is gonna get you out of there when you need to get out of there on time and quickly and on top of it, maybe even needing medical help, well, you're probably in for an unhappy surprise. Now, government might help, your government might help, the embassy might help, but they're not really set up to evacuate you or to get you emergency health care. And if there's more than one of you that's in trouble, you're gonna have a hard time trying to figure out how to get to the top of that list. Enter Global Rescue, the company Dan Richards started more than 15 years ago. That's what they do, no matter what the situation. They rescue people in any sort of situation, and they've got people around the world to help that happen. Dan's going to take us through that journey from the conception of that idea and not letting go of that bone to trying to convince someone else to care to building out a business that now has 250 employees, part-time and full-time worldwide. Let's hope, you know, none of us are ever going to need Dan's help, but if you do, He's going to make sure that someone shows up. And that's what Global Rescue is all about. Fantastic story of entrepreneurship and someone who doesn't let go of that bone until he figures out a solution that works. Dan Richards, our guest on the Sidcast. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here in beautiful Lebanon, New Hampshire with Dan Richards, the CEO of Global Rescue. Hi, Dan. Hi, Sid. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So there is a little bit of a background sound, which is a beautiful mini waterfalls. 
right? What is this, the Muscoma River? It is. And you were telling me earlier, they actually create some power. They carry some power off of this thing still, which is kind of amazing. But it's pleasant and beautiful to look at. Your offices here are pretty big, bigger than I had realized. How many people work for Global Rescue? We've got about 250 personnel worldwide. Worldwide. And about 75 in Lebanon, New Hampshire. So what exactly does Global Rescue do? So we are on the travel risk, crisis management, virtual healthcare, and response space. So that's sort of a fancy way of saying that we take care of people, particularly when they're traveling, Mm -hmm. when bad things happen. So whether they be medical emergencies, security emergencies, other kinds of crises that might result from natural disasters or Mm -hmm. terrorist attacks or civil unrest, we deal with all those sorts of things. So take us through... A real-life situation so we can get a feel for what might be the work you do and how you help your customers. Well, one actually just occurred yesterday on the security side in Chile. So you may be familiar with some of the unrest that is occurring in various parts of Latin America, Mm -hmm. particularly throughout Chile. had riots, I think, in Santiago. That's right, in Santiago that started as a result of the government raising fares on some of the public transport systems in Santiago, and then not being particularly sympathetic to some of the concerns of the populace. And the populace took it in their own hands, it sounds like. That's exactly what's happened. And it's not now just in Santiago. It's spread to various other parts of Chile where the protests aren't nearly as bad as they are in Santiago. But there are protests occurring, people burning tires, public transport in many parts of the country is shut down. Most of the air transport throughout Chile is not operating as well. Even though the airports are open, there aren't enough workers there in the airport system actually to service the aircraft when they come and go. Wow. So, so the airspace big, is open. This is a big crisis. Actually, you know, so you, it's in the paper, you see a little bit, but hardly anything. But this is like a giant thing. It's another example in America. We don't know anything that's going on in the rest of the world, it seems. We're a little myopic from time to time. But this is a big deal in Chile. It's so a big have, deal in Chile. You have clients that are there. We do. And they would need to get out or... They need help doing something? Yeah, so we have a number of clients, some of whom are actually academic clients of ours, students studying throughout the country. Uh But we had some leisure travelers who had been in the country uh, for the better part of a week, and they were essentially stranded in their hotel and needed to get home. And there was no ability for them to leave the hotel, get to the airport. They were stopping people from getting to the airport. Some people are being reported as getting roughed up. And so while they certainly weren't targeting Americans per se, Mm -hmm. which is obviously a a much greater concern if you're an American in that country. What they have not been able to do is to, you know, egress from where they've been sheltering in place. So we performed what we call a security evacuation, which was we brought in a a private aircraft. We provided security. Hold on. The airport's closed. The commercial airport is closed. Okay. There is a means, though, within the area where these people were located to source a separate airfield. Mm -hmm. This airfield is a private airfield, an FBO, fixed base operator. And those employees, different pay scheme and employer than Mm -hmm. the government-run airports. Yeah, so they're they're there. That's operating. That airport is open for business. The airspace is open. Okay. And so we were able to source a private aircraft, bring that aircraft in, provide secure transport for our members from their location in their hotel to the airport, get them on the airplane, and then fly them out of the country. So you have people there doing this? I mean, they had, you did have people there, but did you have people stationed there? Or they, how did that work? The way we prosecute our operations uh, really occurs in two ways. Number one, we have uh, folks who we have under contract. We have, in many cases, longstanding relationships with around the world. So when we need something immediately, yeah. we're able to actually mm-hmm. use them because they're already there. 
Now, when the big events occur, and not that what's happening in Chile isn't a big event, it is, but compared to, say, the earthquake in Haiti mm-hmm. that occurred a number of years back, this is not, obviously, doesn't rise to that level of severity. When those severe events occur, frequently the people that we rely on and that the government relies on are unavailable for obvious reasons. They're either involved in the event themselves, either you know injured or killed, or they're busy taking care of their families, or they're cut off and not able to communicate yeah. so people don't know where they are. So in those instances, we have to always be able to backstop those operations with an organic response. And so we deploy our own personnel from our okay. various places around the world. To you uh, have your own army, uh, <laughs> your own Marines that can come in, some version of that? We have an operations team that's typically stationed in one of our five offices or operation centers around yeah. the world, yeah. and they can deploy from those locations. Right. And the personnel who we employ on those operations teams really fall into one of two categories. They come out of the medical community, so mm-hmm. paramedics, nurses, and physicians. And then on the security side, and some of these folks, we call them dual token because they have both medical and security experience, yeah. but many of them come out of the military special yeah. operations community. So Green Berets, Army Rangers, Navy mm-hmm. SEALs, mm-hmm. retired Marines, right. and those types. So wow. that's very cool. So now I understand it is global and it is rescue. And, but how common are these things? I mean, that, this is like a big thing in Chile and, of course, the horrible earthquake in Haiti and other things. But do you find like every week there's somebody somewhere that is in trouble that you're helping? So we'll do several thousand operations this year, which means that we have something happening not only every day, but we've got usually many operations going on at any given time. So... Let me just give you an example. We've done, and currently, even now, are doing a lot in the country of Nepal and in the Himalaya. We're very popular among the mountain climbing and trekking communities. Mm. Spring, so April and May, is actually climbing season, for instance, in the Himalaya. And so we do an awful lot of rescues in the Himalaya, and in fact, did more than 60 on Mount Everest alone. You may have recalled seeing some of the the long lines of people trying to summit Everest during climbing season. About half of the fatalities that occurred were unfortunately our members. And many of the rescues that we prosecuted that saved people's lives, you know, were people that were trying to get to the top of Everest. And some of them were in that picture. And um, we probably do more rescues on Everest than virtually any other company out there. So we respond when people are having, in many instances, the worst day of their lives and we try and make it better. Right. What happens even in Chile, let alone, you know, Mount Everest? But so there are two people together, and one's a member, meaning that they paid for their service, and the other one is not. What happens to the one that's not? Great question. Well, like everything else, membership has its benefits, right? <laughs> so in this case, that's, that's a pretty big one. The benefits are pretty pretty significant. So we don't like leaving people behind. Obviously, if there are two people that need to be rescued, and one of them's our member, and we're going to deploy resources we can usually pretty cost-effectively provide those resources to the person who is not a member Mm -hmm. also. But they can't get them for free because that's reserved for people who are Mm -hmm. members of Global Rescue. And if everybody expected them for free, then we wouldn't be in business, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. So go back to the Santiago, the Chile example. So you knew where the airfield was ahead of time. I mean, it scoped out all kinds of scenario planning ahead of time, I presume, because you don't have time to start figuring out. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is all over the world. It's all over the world. And, you know, we have teams of intelligence analysts that support our operations teams. They're actually part of our operations department. Hmm. And they do two things. They publish destination intelligence and reports on about 215 countries and principalities around the world. And number two, they publish flash and alert reporting, like coverage that is occurring for Chile. So Mm -hmm. our operations teams know 
what's going on in the region. Yeah. They had been provided with all the information that they might need to have the situational awareness mm-hmm. required to be able to prosecute an evacuation or a rescue. So it sounds like you're always doing some rescues, but I can imagine like in an insurance company, this is a type of insurance, I suppose, although you're not helping people after the fact, you're helping them in real time, rather important difference. You're there when the house is burning down, that not is true. afterwards. But it is a form because people pay a monthly or a yearly fee to be a member usually, or a company does for them. Yeah, so we have short-term memberships for individuals and families that start at $119. And many of our members do travel more than once per year. And so they tend to opt for the annual membership. Our individual and family, our consumer business is a little bit different. In fact, it's quite different in many ways than our enterprise and government business. Mm -hmm. A lot of what we do for enterprises, which are businesses, academic institutions, faith-based organizations, and others, is to provide emergency action planning, training, and a lot of the support Mm -hmm. systems that enterprises need in order to meet their duty of care that they have to their traveling employees and right. others and other stakeholders. Yep. And then obviously when things go wrong, we're the ones who are called upon mm-hmm. to respond. We work with a number of insurance companies. So while there is a an insurance component and certainly relationships that we engage in, we're actually not an insurance company, we're an ops business. So we actually mm-hmm. deploy the resources that are needed in the, you know, the time that they are needed. And then we're not really so concerned about who pays the bill. Uh, sometimes it's the customer. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's an insurance company. Sometimes it's a government. It really just depends. Yeah. And so when you say pay the bill, if you're a member, do you pay for the actual cost of getting out of there or that's part of that membership fee? No, that's all included in the membership fee. So, yeah. well, that's, I mean, it's very expensive to do what you just described. It can be. It can, it can be. And that's <laughs> what made be. me think about insurance <laughs> because insurance, you know, it's a premium model. You get your premiums and you hope that your actuaries are smart enough to do the right uh, pricing so that you, when bad events happen, you have to pay out. It doesn't take you out of business, but there's, there's some element of that here. Of course there is. And we're not actuaries. We don't employ the actuaries. We let the insurance companies worry about that side of the business. Yeah. So we're mostly just concerned with, can we deliver the critical services when they're needed? Right. And we let the actuaries worry about what that's going to cost. Have you met people that you've saved as a company? I'm sure you have. I have. And have you, have you ever gone out with the ops team? I mean, you're the CEO of the company, a fan of the company, but have you actually gone out with them sometimes? So the short answer is not on an active like security operation yeah. like the one that's happening in Chile. I've been involved with some of the medical evacuations that we've done. Uh-huh. For instance, meeting aircraft at the airfield and helping to offload patients and meeting with the families and right. next of kin for those who are involved. And that is a special and wonderful part of my job. Mm-hmm. And one of the, honestly, best parts of my job. And I spent 10 years almost on Wall Street in the investment banking and private equity industries prior to doing this. And we invested in a lot of different kinds of businesses. Mm-hmm. None of them had the kind of relationships that mm-hmm. we have formed with yeah. our clients and members. And the intensity of it can be quite remarkable. Yeah. I mean, it's life and death. It's, it is life and death. It's life and death. And so what do they say to you? Well, it runs the gamut. In general, they tend to be extraordinarily grateful, but you know, some of them can be pretty colorful. I'll tell you a story about one of the early rescues we did mm-hmm. back in 2006. We'd only been in existence for a few years yeah. at that point, but there was an individual who had been hiking the Colca Canyon in the Peruvian Andes. Okay. And the Colca has been described as the world's deepest canyon. Mm-hmm. And this individual got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and slipped off the trail and fell down into the canyon. 
and he fell about 50 feet. And what arrested his fall was a cactus. Oh. And so the good news is you're still alive. The bad news is your life was just saved by a cactus. And so you can imagine <laughs> what kind of shape he was in yes. uh, immediately after. So we got the phone call from, he was with a group from a physician on the trip saying, you know, I've got this individual. I don't know how, you know, he provided a preliminary assessment, but I don't really don't know how injured he is. He fell mm-hmm. quite a distance mm-hmm. and we got to get him out of here. And so we did a field rescue, which is we break evacuations and the operations that we do really into two components. There's the field rescue component when somebody needs to get to any, you know, civilization care of some kind, a clinic, a hospital or whatever. And then onward movement, we refer to either as a repatriation or an evacuation. And so he needed a field rescue. And so we prosecuted the field rescue using both a helicopter, which couldn't actually take him where we needed him to go because it was beyond the refueling range Mm. of the helicopter. So we had to stop in an airfield, get him off the helicopter, put him on a fixed-wing aircraft, and then get that fixed-wing aircraft. We, We did get him back to Lima to get him diagnosed and treated. And amazingly, no broken bones, a lot of bruises, and a few hundred cactus spikes that had gone into his skin. And then uh, he was from Texas and we got him back to Texas and the whole thing start to finish lasted uh, about 30 hours. Mm -hmm. So when he got back, I'll never forget, he called and asked to speak with me and uh, I got him on the phone and we were talking and I asked him how he's doing. And he said, I'm glad to be alive and I wouldn't be here were it not for what you and your company did. That was an amazing conversation to have. And then every year for the next dozen years or so, mm-hmm. he used to call me on the anniversary of his rescue oh boy. to thank me wow. and just remind me that what I'm doing is important yeah. and that I need to keep doing it. That's got to feel really fulfilling on, for you and your whole team here. As the CEO, I get a lot of the credit and really that credit belongs with you know, the men and women at Global Rescue who are actually prosecuting the rescues and in some cases putting their lives on the line on behalf of yeah. our members and our clients. So how, this guy turned out okay once they dealt with the couple of hundred cactus holes in him. Well, it was funny. He, you know, the next year, so we had that conversation shortly after he was rescued. And then the next year he called me and we spoke and we actually ended up getting an opportunity. I got an opportunity to meet him in person in New York City hmm. um, when he was traveling there. I think it was two years after his rescue. But that following year, he said, you know, it was a good three or four months after the rescue. He was still finding cactus Ugh. spikes that were slowly working their way out of his skin. Ugh. And he'd be sitting in a meeting and he'd feel a, a prick, you know, in his pant leg. And lo and behold, there'd be another little cactus oh, spine yeah. that was so working the, its way out of his the body. The force of the fall, I mean, they're right through him, really. That's exactly right. Oh, my God. Ooh. That's not a good visual, but worse for him because he dealt with it. But look at the gratitude that he showed. You know, we often talk about gratitude in life and everyday life and how, of course, people appreciate when they're appreciated. But when you share that gratitude with others, you yourself get so much from that. Absolutely. Are you involved in any cybersecurity activities or that's not a physical thing? That's a more, I don't know what that is. It's a mental thing. It's not physical. Well, we are because, you know, we're citizens of the world and our members travel to these places where there are cyber threats Mm. and travelers, unfortunately, are remarkably vulnerable to those kinds of activities. And so there are certain countries around the world that are involved in institutionalized, essentially, cyber penetration activities for anybody that crosses their borders. And we warn our members Mm -hmm. of the countries that are engaged in those sorts of behaviors and we try and help them protect themselves and give them advice so that they're not victims and potentially compromising 
information that could be sensitive to them. So we are involved to some degree, but we're not in the cybersecurity business per se ourselves. We're not going to come into your home or office and tell you how to harden your networks. We will try and advise you, though, on if you're a traveler or you're bringing information across borders, some of the things that you should be thinking about and some of the measures that you should take to try and protect yourself and potentially your business. Right. So why did you start the company in the first place? I understand the value that you're adding. I understand how fulfilling it is. And it sounds pretty exciting by way of typical businesses, I suppose. But why did you start in the first place? You may not have anticipated everything that happened. So I was working in New York City at the time for a private equity firm. And this was shortly after 9-11. And we were trying to make an investment in businesses that provide assistive services and crisis management and response services for travelers. And what I discovered was that there were a lot of companies out there, many of them insurance companies, that talked a lot about these types of services, but when the chips were actually down, Mm -hmm. didn't have the ability to deliver in the way that you would want for yourself or your loved one, your mother, your father, your sister, the people you care about. And there was really no institutionalized way of providing these travel risk services to institutions. So companies more and more have employees who are traveling further and further afield. Supply chains are getting longer and longer. Mm -hmm. People are just doing a a lot more travel. And these organizations have an obligation to try and keep their employees safe. Number one, it's a legal obligation. Number two, if your star performer, you know, your best salesperson Mm -hmm. gets on an airplane and doesn't come back, you know, because they're involved in some kind of crisis during their trip, that's a serious problem. So from a business continuity and resilience standpoint, those are real issues. So the more I looked at the industry, the more I found that it wasn't really satisfying the needs Mm -hmm. uh, of those who were buying the services. And so I honestly made the mistake of falling in love with the idea of creating an entity that would satisfy this need in the marketplace. And I also, you know, to be honest, really liked the idea of creating an entity that had the potential of doing well financially while doing good in the world Mm -hmm. and marrying those two aspects together. So I ended up quitting my job and starting a company. You started yourself? You had partners? No, I started myself. And it actually took root at my kitchen table (laughs) in Manhattan. And uh, we didn't formally launch the company until I had moved to Boston. And that's where our first headquarters locations was. But I realized very early on that there were going to be two things that I needed in order to be successful. Number one, I was going to be able to provide information to people into organizations that they would need in an emergency. So Mm -hmm. basically, during a crisis, you need to understand what's happening to you or to your organization. So providing that situational awareness is incredibly important. I didn't obviously have the expertise as a recovering finance guy in order to be able to do that. I could advise on, you know, how much things might cost, but (laughs) that wasn't going to get the job done. So I realized I would need on the medical side, a world-class partner. And so I went out to the top medical institutions in this country and ended up partnering with Johns Hopkins Medicine out of Baltimore, which at the time was the number one ranked medical institution in the United States. Mm -hmm. They were providing a very high level of service to the United States government, the Department of Homeland Security, and a number of government agencies. And I asked them whether or not they'd ever envisioned doing this for a private sector company. They said no. And I said, well, I'm asking. Mm -hmm. And uh, the kind of company that I want to build would have this as an integral part, this consultative and advisory component as an integral part to the services that we deliver. And they were interested. It took us a little while to hammer out an agreement, but we did. And so that was really the first critical component because when you think about the kinds of things that happen to people, they're much more likely to suffer a medical crisis than they are a security crisis Mm -hmm. when they're traveling. But the second component that you then need is once you have the information that allows you to make a decision, 
you then need to be able to operationalize and act on that information. And the only way you do that is by having an external resource that can provide you with the things that you need in order to either take care of yourself and or move somewhere. And usually it's to get out of whatever the environment is that you happen to be in and get to a safe location or get to the care that you need. And so we went out and started hiring folks from the medical community and folks who were veterans who, you know, if you think about, I founded the company in 2004 and 2005, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there were a lot of veterans that were rotating back to the United States. And this to me seemed like a perfect mission set for them. And we started hiring veterans and predominantly former special operators. Navy SEALs, people like that. That's exactly right. And, you know, with those initial resources, started the company. Just talking about selling your idea to Johns Hopkins, which is a top, top medical institution in America. And you mentioned also heavily involved with the government. Could you take us back to that conversation? First of all, was it hard to get the meeting and who'd you get the meeting with? And how'd you convince them to talk to you? Because, you know, you were really right at the beginning. It was not easy. You know, it's interesting. I went out to many of the top medical institutions in this country and virtually all of them that I spoke to said that they thought that the idea was interesting. And many of them actually were willing to meet with me, even though the people that I typically ended up meeting with the first time were not necessarily the right people to meet with. You know, many of these organizations are quite large and trying to get to the person who actually is the decision maker is not an easy thing to do. But I was really to some degree naive. I thought my idea was a really good idea Mm -hmm. and I was really excited about it. And I think that at Johns Hopkins, I was fortunate in that I met someone on the other side of the table relatively early on. I think he was the second person that I met there. And he had a lot of decision-making authority within the organization. And interestingly about Johns Hopkins, they are relatively, from a decision-making standpoint, relatively distributed organization. Hmm. So That would have helped then in this situation. Absolutely. It was The decisions do not really come from the top down. The business hmm. unit operators have the ability to make decisions about opportunities like the one that I presented to them with a pretty high degree of autonomy. Now, there, of course, is a, you know, a review that... Sure. What business unit was it? So I ended up meeting a gentleman by the name of Jim Shulin, who is the chief administrative officer of the emergency department system at Johns Hopkins. So he's responsible for all of the emergency care operations throughout the Johns Hopkins enterprise, number one. Number two, he works a lot with Johns Hopkins International. Mm -hmm. And so many people probably don't know this, but Johns Hopkins has 30 or so medical institutions around the world that they have relationships with, partnerships with, Mm -hmm. where... They, in some cases, provide advisory and consulting services. In some cases, they, you know, they operate either portions or all of the facilities themselves. Mm-hmm. But a, a very interesting and entrepreneurial kind of organization. And Jim is one of those individuals who has both medical expertise. He's a PA and also has an MBA. So mm-hmm. a very business-minded Yeah, um, so he kind of got it. The culture let him understand it. He had some influence and his business background, and I guess they had operations all over the world, and then they were working with the government. So he kind of got it. Other people may have gotten it too in other places, I guess. But what made this the difference that he kept going? One of the interesting things was when I walked into Johns Hopkins and said, here's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. In very much the same way, I had walked in and said, here's what I want to do in any of these other institutions. Instead of having him say, oh, this is very interesting. We'd like to study it, Mm -hmm. which is if you're an entrepreneur and you want to get something started, the last thing you want to do is walk into a, an academic medical center and hear somebody say, I'm going to study it because right. studies in those settings take many years yeah. to complete. Oh, yeah. What Jim said was, oh, that's very interesting. We're already doing it. And I said, oh, really? You're already doing it. 
who are you doing it for? And what exactly are you doing? And he said, well, we're providing advisory and consultative services to the Department of Homeland Security, to the U.S. Secret Service, to the U.S. Marshal Service, to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and other government agencies. Mm -hmm. And so when I started talking about the kind of services that I wanted to deploy for the private sector, there was a very high degree of overlap for what they were already providing to the government at Johns Hopkins. So it wasn't a one-for-one, but it it was very close. So he understood what it was that I wanted to do. And he was brave enough to make a bet on a guy who was a first-time entrepreneur. Now, I had had a lot of business experience in finance, investing in companies and and doing other things, but I was untested. Mm -hmm. I think in many ways I was naive about how we were going to get things off the ground and how fast things were going to progress. But God bless him. He saw something in me that made him want to take that leap of faith. Once that happened, so you signed the deal, what was the next thing that you did? You were probably doing 10 things at once anyways, but what was the next one that kind of emerged? Well, I realized pretty quickly that I now have an agreement with Johns Hopkins. So you better do it. Oh, oh my God, I actually have to go and do this. <laughs> you know how long <laughs> so, you're talking, you got to start right. doing it. <laughs> that's exactly right. So I realized that there was going to be a very significant quantity of resources that I would need to aggregate in order to provide the service on a worldwide basis. We weren't U.S. rescue. We weren't regional rescue. Mm-hmm. We're global rescue. Yeah. And while the world has shrunk, or at least it feels like it's shrunk, I think for many of us, it's still a remarkably large, diverse, and sometimes difficult place. So we went about trying to figure out how do we get our arms around this challenge, this problem. And it really is a very interesting academic exercise to try and figure out how do you deploy these kinds of resources on a global basis, especially when you have limited resources yep. yourself. Yep. Now, we had we had a great partner in Johns Hopkins. Some of our early employees had phenomenal experience and capabilities themselves, and we had, you know, we benefited from their relationships and the relationships of Johns Hopkins, but it's still a monumental task to try to figure out how do you deploy these kinds of services on a worldwide basis. So, Did you look at what the government was doing the, or you looked at the opposite of what the government was doing? Because that sounds like your primary competitor in the early going. We did. And it's interesting you say that the government is a competitor. You know, the government could be viewed that way, but really what they are is an enabler. We, we viewed them as an enabler for our early membership base because many of the folks that we first started selling our services to, even though we have a lot of international clients today, they're American citizens. So... Why would they need a service like Global Rescue if they're American citizens? Don't the American consular and, and embassy services yeah. that are in these various That's regions what take care of think. Americans yep. the way that we would be at Global Rescue? And the answer to that question is they don't. And so in certain circumstances, there are certainly essential services that they provide to American citizens and you know that other foreign governments provide to their citizens. But the reality is, is that most Americans and most travelers, they get in a motor vehicle accident, they get food poisoning, they come down with some kind of cardiac or other kind of Mm -hmm. serious medical issue, the embassies are really not set up to take care of those individuals the way that you would want someone who you care about taken care of. They're not going to deploy medical teams to oversee their care. They're not going to review the medical records that the individual Mm -hmm. generates in a care facility. They're not necessarily going to deploy and don't have the ability to deploy field rescue resources. There's just a lot of things that they can't do. When you look at, for instance, just going back to the Haiti earthquake example. You had tens of thousands of Americans in Haiti at the time, and they, many of them sought refuge at the U.S. Embassy. Well, the U.S. Embassy is not set up as a refuge point mm-hmm. for tens of thousands of people. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just not. The same thing is true. One of the, the early and uh, large security evacuations we did was in 2006 during the 
Israeli Hezbollah conflict. Mm -hmm. And our embassy in Beirut, there were almost 50,000 Americans actually in the country of Lebanon when that conflict began. Many of them sought refuge at the U.S. embassy in Beirut. And you can't harbor thousands and thousands of people in a facility that's really undesigned yeah, you know, for I, hundreds. What you're saying is exactly right. It's just sometimes people make the assumption, and I guess I may have made the same assumption, that, well, if something really bad happens, they're going to try to do something. It doesn't mean they're going to be efficient. That doesn't mean they're going to be quick. There's a lot of people. But they're not set up for that. I mean, they'll, they'll do what they can do. But this is so much more targeted and kind of personal. It's like your personal team available. And so you're not one of 50,000 people. That's exactly right? right. Did you know you were going to be an entrepreneur? Was this in the back of your head? Because it sounds like this was like a big revelation one day, an epiphany. You woke up and you realized, wow, this is like a real problem out there. And I could see how it would be valuable personally and professionally to figure this out. You know, I'm the son of an entrepreneur. So my father was a, a real estate entrepreneur. And I always admired his entrepreneurial achievements and his journey because I remember growing up at the end of a dirt road in rural Vermont and we didn't have much. And, you know, over about a 25-year period, became pretty successful. And, and watching that journey was a, a real eye-opener for me. And I have huge admiration for what he accomplished. And I didn't necessarily set out to be an entrepreneur, but I encountered a problem that I didn't understand why there wasn't a solution for it in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And I felt myself compelled to do something about it. You know, sometimes, you know, people say they pick a profession and sometimes a profession picks you. And in this particular instance, this opportunity really did kind of pick me. I couldn't wrap my mind around why these sorts of services weren't available to someone in the marketplace if they were willing to pay for them. Didn't you try to resist this idea because you had a good job? I had a great job. I can tell you, my parents, when I first started describing this, to them said, you know, it's really admirable what you want to do. If you want to be in the rescue business, why don't you go and scratch that itch by volunteering at the local fire department or getting your EMT and going and riding an ambulance? And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. This is a big problem out mm -hmm. there that really does need to be solved. So they said, look, we don't necessarily totally understand exactly what it is that you're saying, uh, but we support you. Mm -hmm. And if you say so, then we, you know, then we believe. And actually one of the first things I did, my father had been retired for the better part of 15 years, mm -hmm. uh, is I grabbed him and said, how would you like to help me set this thing up? Mm -hmm. And so I pulled him out of retirement and he actually helped me physically set up our first offices in Boston in 2004 and 2005. Not all the, the offices in Boston were wired for internet. Hard to believe, right? Moving into they were an office. not wired for internet. No, they weren't. And uh, it was remarkable. Young so, listeners cannot believe such a thing. I know. It's, <laughs> it's shocking to imagine. But the internet at that point was really, you know, it was only about a decade old. Yeah. And so we moved into a, you know, a big office building in Boston. And one of the first things that he did was he got a contractor to come and lay the wire from the elevator bank, all, we were down at the end of a very long hallway mm -hmm. and got the contractor to lay the wire and there were some issues. And he was actually, I'll never forget seeing him up on a ladder with the contractor trying to figure out how to get the wires from the, <laughs> from the elevator bank down to our office wow. uh, at the end of the hallway. So I grabbed him and he was incredibly supportive and he still continues to be part of what we're doing here um, to this day. But wow. in terms of being an entrepreneur, it was something that really chose me, I think, in many ways. Yeah. Do you have friends that are entrepreneurs as well? I do. And in fact, you know, when I graduated from college, I, I, as I said, I went to go work in the leverage 
finance business on Wall Street. And a number of my colleagues and friends who were consultants and bankers, particularly during the late 90s and early 2000s. When we had that little uh, bump. There was a little the, bubble. The internet bubble. Oh, there first, was a little, a little the bubble. First one. That's right. But before that happened, a number of them had actually quit their jobs in finance and in the law and in consulting and had gone and started companies or tried to start they companies. They did it .com. They did dot-coms. Like everybody else. They did dot-coms. I must have had probably 25 or 30 friends and colleagues that went and did it. Mm. And interestingly, there's really only a handful that created businesses that were sustainable. And the majority of them went back to being bankers and lawyers and and other professions that would uh, keep the lights on. Right. But a couple of them were actually very, very successful, but very, very few. Does your brother work here as well? No, my brother was actually a year behind me in business school at Tuck, but uh, he is a partner in a private equity fund in San Francisco. Was he ever part of this? or No, he was not. He's been involved as my you know, informal advisor and, uh, and confidant. And, you know, he, uh, one of my biggest, certainly cheerleaders and also a shoulder to cry on when, you know, when things sometimes get tough. How long did it take to be profitable? So you started in 2004. Founded the company in 2004, really launched in 2005. Do you remember your first customer, first client? <laughs> I do remember my first clients. There's sort of a funny story about that as well. You know, there was a, you work so incredibly hard to try and find someone who believes in you enough to give you their money mm. for your product or service. And those first few years, if I had known that they were going to be as tough as they really ended up being, I might not have done it. Yeah. And that's part of the, the beauty of being sort of somewhat young. I was 31 when I started the company and somewhat naive. Mm-hmm. And that sort of ended up carrying me through. But I'll never forget, I was at the gym in Boston and I was changing. And I was completely naked standing in front of my locker, <laughs> changing my clothes. And there were two guys walking through the center aisle. And I heard one guy say to the other guy, you know, I just booked my trip to go. I forget where he was going, somewhere in Africa. And the guy walking with him said, oh, have you gotten your Global Rescue membership yet? And, and these were two These were two guys. I looked at them and I was standing there with no clothes on. I didn't know either of them. I thought to myself, oh my God, here are two people who I don't know who are talking about Global Rescue. And one of them was telling the other one to buy a membership. I was so excited. I, I had to stop myself from running over there and giving them a hug, which, you know, you don't do that in the yeah, locker room. You don't wearing, do that in men's the locker room. You're not wearing any clothes. But I was... I was so excited. I literally had to restrain myself. Uh, that's from, great. That must that. have been something. Oh, my God. It was very exciting. So I was asked, how long did it take to actually make a profit? It really took the better part of four years, yeah. about three and a half years. You see, it's what you're describing and if, what you also said. If I knew how tough it was, it was going to be, I may not have done it. I hear that a lot. Yeah. Uh, it takes that creative idea. And it takes a lot of organizational skills, but you got to be stubborn along the way, too. Oh, man. You really have to be stubborn. <laughs> you, I mean, you really have to be stubborn. I'll never forget in in one of our first office buildings, looking up and and looking at the number of lights that we had that were illuminating our office space Mm -hmm. and then trying to correlate our electricity consumption back to the electric bill that I was looking at (laughs) because I believed I was being overcharged by our electric company and thinking to myself, we don't need all these lights. These lights are expensive, but these are the kinds of things that, I mean, you literally do almost anything to try and and get to profitability and to be successful. I mean, it's... Right. Remarkable. Your company has been involved with some really, really challenging, difficult instances. And I wonder if you could share a little bit more. You know, you mentioned um, briefly earlier about Mount Everest and the spike in the number of people that died this in 2019. It, wasn't, it was in the climbing season then. It was April, May timeframe. 
Yeah, it was. Typically, April, May is the time for summiting the big peaks in the Himalaya, and that's when most people try and summit Everest. Now, it's a dangerous thing, to be sure. And every year there are people that die, but there was a disproportionate number of tragedies this year. What happened? It was a combination of things. Number one, there were a record number of climbing permits that were issued to the climbing community. So there were more people on the mountain than ever before. Number two, there was a relatively narrow weather window. So when you combine the number of people that you have with the number of days that were good summit bid days, you end up in a situation where everybody's clamoring to get to the top at the same time. And so, so the fact that there were more people in a short window was a contributing factor to what happened? Oh, absolutely. Yep. How, how so? Well, it's kind of like trying to put too many cars down a single lane road. Mm-hmm. And that's effectively what you have. Mm-hmm. If you've seen some of the pictures near the summit, everybody's roped in. There are a limited number of ropes and everybody needs to go up and down on the same ropes. So you literally had people waiting sometimes for many, many hours up in the death zone. So the, de- the death zone is when the air quality is pretty bad. Is that? Well, it's not that the quality is bad. There's just not enough of it. So enough. there's not enough oxygen in the air and your body starts to deteriorate. And ultimately your cells start to die because they are being very slowly starved of oxygen. So who allowed so many people to be there? I mean, that sounds like that was a gigantic mistake. Well, you could certainly argue that it was. The bigger problem was that there was a lack of coordination for the logistics of those who were summiting. So could the mountain accommodate that number of people? It absolutely could, but not with that concentration in that short time frame. Yeah. So if there was better coordination and they had been spaced out a little bit better, you wouldn't have seen some of the things happen that did happen with unfortunately tragic results. So what did uh, Global Rescue do right there? Well, over that period, we prosecuted about 65 rescues just from Everest. 65 people? 65 people that we evacuated and rescued from Mm. Mount Everest, from all over the mountain, from base camp on up. And it was a very active season for us. And, you know, look, we exist to serve and to ultimately save the lives of our members. But there are environments where helicopters can't fly. So, Mm. for instance, on Mount Everest, it's very difficult to do any kind of rescue at all above Camp 2. And uh, there were plenty of stress calls that came in above Camp 2. And so we would work with those who were placing the calls to us, their Sherpas, their guide leaders, to try to get them to a place where our helicopters could land. So a landing zone that would allow us to evacuate and rescue them from the mountain. Were you able to put some of your own personnel on the mountain in any way or just lower down, I guess? So lower down. So our, our people typically sometimes go to base camp. More frequently, they're in Lukla and Kathmandu. But our personnel are on the helicopters and they are out trying to save the lives of the people who they've you know, committed to rescue. Yeah, 65 people, but some of those people actually didn't make it. Some of them didn't make it. Yeah, that's correct. So part of our business is transporting mortal remains. Mm-hmm. So we call them MRTs, mortal remains transports. So for those who don't make it, we're pledged to bring the remains home to their, their next of kin and their grieving family members. That so- must be hard when you're doing that. It's the worst part of our job when we have to communicate to a family member that, you know, their loved one is not going to make it or not coming home. Right. You've also been involved in a lot of different terrorist and dangerous events and thinking back to the siege of the hotel or maybe the hotels in Mumbai in 2008 or so. What happened there? We had a number of members who were uh, at various locations in Mumbai, some of whom were in the Taj Hotel. And we actually, while the attacks were ongoing at that location, 
We received a number of phone calls from our members who were trapped in their rooms. We had a collection of members who had taken refuge actually in the basement of the hotel and had called us from there, uh, all of them desperate to get out. Of course, we were not able to deploy our personnel to the hotel because the police and military had cordoned off the entire area. And, you know, there were active, you know, there's active fighting occurring between the terrorists and the military and police. But they were seeking our guidance. You know, what do I do? So what did you tell them? Well, our, let's say someone was in the room, because that's something everyone could imagine. People, everyone travels to some extent. You're in a hotel and some terrible thing is happening. And they were, I think the terrorists were shooting through doors or trying to. They were. They were. What did you tell them to do? So for those that were in their hotel rooms, we provided advice regarding how you harden the door, prevent it from being opened. Mm. You know, part of the facility was on fire, as you will call. And, you know, mm-hmm. people were inhaling smoke and having respiratory issues. And so how do you prevent the smoke and and other things from getting into your room or at least give yourself more time? And so we were advising people about wetting towels and putting them down at the base of the door frames. We were also taking the information about who they were and where they were Mm -hmm. and transmitting that information to authorities. So, and sometimes the next of kin. So at a minimum, we were having the opportunity to provide proof of life to their loved ones, which obviously they cared very deeply about. Those would be calls coming into your operations center here or somewhere. Well, actually right there probably, I assume, would be automatically in your operations in Pakistan. So, yes. Yeah, so our the closest operations centers to India are in Pakistan. It wasn't that facility, though, that fielded the call. I believe it was our operations center in Boston that probably received that phone call. And that would be maybe multiple phone calls because there's... Yeah, I'm just talking about the first phone call to come in. First um, phone call. So what actually happens internally when this happens? Everyone's on alert. You need all hands on deck because this is a crisis? Oh, absolutely. And when something of that magnitude occurs, you know, the first thing that our watchstanders do, they'll send out a warning order to all of operations. And then there's an escalation scale um, for the leadership of the company, myself obviously included. And when certain criteria are met, then the ES score is elevated. And uh, for an event like this, it immediately went to my desk. And uh, we mobilized our teams and we went to work. And it was just one of those experiences where, you know, folks are working long hours and you don't get a lot of breaks and yeah. it's quite intense. Mm-hmm. So, One of your people was Benghazi in that disaster in uh, Libya that was a few years ago. What happened there? How, how was Global Rescue involved? Well, we actually, you know, as a company, we weren't involved. But an individual who worked for us, a former Navy SEAL by the name of Glenn Dougherty, was a member of the response team mm-hmm. that deployed in the wake of, or actually while the terror attacks were ongoing. Glenn was just a a, a phenomenal guy, a former SEAL paramedic, and he deployed right into the thick of it and lost his life Mm. in a mortar attack on the CIA annex in Benghazi in 2012. So as a company, we weren't involved, but we lost one of our own that day, and we actually have a conference room here named after him. Now, these are, of course, unbelievably tragic, major front-page stories. Most of the things that happen are not, certainly most of the things, like the 9.999% of what happens to travelers, doesn't go into this, so we don't want to scare away everyone from the world of traveling. But what should, say, the average person think about when they're traveling overseas? You know, usually you think about, let's go to a nice hotel, make sure there's a nice pool. You don't always think about the safety issues. And first of all, would you say that it would be wise to think about it, even if you're going to, I don't know, um, but I was about to say London or Paris, but there have been terrorist events there. I guess there's no place that you should not be thinking about is the story. It's terrible to have to say it, but you're absolutely right. The places that previously we might have considered safe or benign from a risk or security standpoint are no longer that way. 
plenty of attacks, unfortunately, have occurred, obviously, in the U.S. and mm-hmm. in Western Europe. So the first advice that we always get to travelers is take safety, security, and your own well-being seriously. Prepare for the environment that you're going to be entering. The likelihood that you're involved in a terrorist attack or something of that nature, natural disaster, for instance, is extraordinarily low, but it's not zero. Prepare for the things that you're likely to encounter. What are some tips you can share on that preparation? I mean, it depends on where you're going, of course, but are there some kind of common tips that you think about? Well, one of the, the biggest challenges that people have when there is a systemic or major event is communication mm-hmm. and having the ability to communicate. We all take for granted. Mm-hmm. We've all got cell phones in our pockets, right. right? It's instant communication all the time, probably more than we would even want. The reality is, is in these sorts of situations, the quantity of communication on through the towers overloads the system. Mm-hmm. So you look at what happened, for instance, in the wake of 9-11. People had to resort to using landlines to communicate with their loved ones. Same thing is true even today and to a lesser degree, but having a means of communication with your friends and family and with a resource like Global Rescue is really important. And especially if you're going off the grid, there are a lot of people today who are pretty adventurous, right? Adventure travel is a hugely popular and growing segment of the travel community. And you don't have to go too far off the grid in order to not have cell reception and satellite telephony cost of which has come down dramatically. There are other devices on the market, satellite texting devices that are Mm. a lot less expensive. Bring a means of communication because if guys like us don't know you're having a problem, we can't help you. And the same thing is true for, you know, local first responders and authorities. So bring a means of communication. That's number one. Number two, you need to ask yourself the question whether or not the place that you're going, whether you should actually go there. Mm. I think that sometimes is a question that people just don't consider and they don't ask themselves. Yeah. And, you know, are you physically able and up to whatever it is that you are planning on doing, number one? Number two, does it make sense from a a geopolitical standpoint with respect to what's going on in the country you're thinking about visiting? You know, from a health standpoint, we obviously had a, uh, a very significant health issue in the Southern Hemisphere, predominantly parts of the Caribbean and Latin America with respect to Zika, for instance, that prevented a lot of pregnant women or people who wanted to become pregnant from going to those locations. Those are questions to ask. And there's, you know, eight or 10 things that the prepared traveler should do in questions that he or she should ask before you get on the airplane to go. Do you have some ideas or tips on your website as well that people can look at? We absolutely do. We'll get that information in the show notes. On Zika, is it still a problem? Oh, it absolutely is. You don't hear about it as much in the media, but Zika has not been eradicated. There are parts of the world that are still affected by Zika and there are still infants who are being born with microcephaly, which is a shrunken head and cranial circumference as a result of the infection. And it's horrible disease. So it's a problem even in the Caribbean now? Less so in the Caribbean. It's actually more in South America than yeah. it is in the Caribbean. And it does you know, come and go seasonally. But there have been huge efforts to try and eradicate it. It's certainly reduced the incidence, particularly in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. uh, but in other places that are you know, terribly affected, like Brazil. Putting on your advice cap, I'd like to ask guests of the SIDCAST to project yourself back to when you were 21 years old. And if you can kind of just sit down next to the 21-year-old Dan and you were thinking, what bit of advice would I give him, given everything you know today that maybe the 21-year-old Dan didn't quite understand, what would you advise yourself back in time? Wow, I was 21. That was a... I'm, 46 today. So that was quite a long time ago. You were ago. ripe for advice. That's yeah, all I was means. definitely ripe for advice. You know, I was pretty ripe for advice when I was 31 also, <laughs> which is when I started Global Rescue. That advice is easier to give actually. So for anybody that's contemplating starting a company, 
I would say two things. Number one, it's going to be harder than you think. And that's not an effort by certainly me to dissuade anybody from becoming an entrepreneur because it's an incredible experience, particularly if you do get to profitability and to a point of success. Mm-hmm. But it is starting anything from nothing is incredibly difficult, just incredibly difficult. And to go into it with your eyes wide open and to understand that there are a series, uh, you know, of core set of capability that I think that any entrepreneur really needs in order to be successful. So that's number one. Number two yeah. is if you're going to go out and start something that you want to scale in any meaningful way, raise money. And, I, <laughs> and I'm a guy that, that chose not to. And while I'm very happy about that today, it made my life in the first five or six years of our company's development much, much harder I than mean, it needed to be. You're putting a lot of your personal chips into that pot. Absolutely. I mean, I had to win that. Absolutely. And not that raising money is easy or having partners, you know, financial partners is easy either. And there are plenty of pitfalls for taking that approach. But the likelihood of success is higher because you extend your runway. You have the more capital you have in the bank. You have more time. You have more time. Sometimes some smart people come with that money. That's exactly right. There can be a lot of benefits. Right. Last question. So you're married, right, Dan? I am. How did you meet Mrs. Richards? (laughs) (laughs) So I met my wife, Melissa, on the internet, believe it or not. So, okay, look so at that. <laughs> you can get very, pretty, very common. You get pretty much whatever you want on the internet. And that's where I found my wife. So Melissa also is a, has a Dartmouth connection. She went to Dartmouth undergrad class of 2000. And we had lots and lots of friends in common. We're both mm-hmm. living in Boston. In fact, we were living about a mile from each other, yeah. but had never met each other. And we've got, actually gone back and tried to trace, you know, where we were at various you times. May have been at the same place and the and same we time. actually think that we may have been at some of the same yeah. social events and parties actually, but had never just been introduced. And so back in 2009, I was on Match.com and so was she. I was actually the first person to message her on the platform. And we went out on a date and um, within nine months, we were married. Within nine months, you actually got married. So you knew you were getting married pretty quick. Yeah, we, we when, knew. This we, is we, love we, at first sight type of story. Actually, no, I, I exaggerate. So we met in July of 2009 and we were married in October of 2010. So it was actually like 16 months. Yeah. So we were engaged within nine months as Really what I meant. Got it. Got it. Well, that sounds like a great story. Dan Richards, CEO, founder of Global Rescue. Thanks so much. We'll have some of the links to your stuff and your organization on the show notes as well. Great to have you with us, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Sitcast. I am so appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode, and I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry production company and always recorded live and in person with our guest of the week.